How we talk to one another is directly connected to how we feel about ourselves, our self-worth, our willingness to be open and vulnerable, and our self-compassion. We can show up more fully for others when we show up fully to ourselves. But unhealthy ego, fear of humiliation, and isolation can stop us in our tracks. The antidote is community and connection. Our question this episode, how can we hold conflict creatively in order to build stronger relationships? Welcome to episode 20 of How Can I Say This, where we look to build connection and community through courageous conversations. I'm your host, Beth Bilo. Thank you so much for joining me. You are in for a super big treat today in the form of a wide-ranging discussion with writer, speaker, and activist Parker Palmer. Parker focuses on issues in education, community, leadership, spirituality, and social change. He is founder and senior partner emeritus of the Center for Courage and Renewal, which offers long-term retreat programs for people in the serving professions, including teachers, administrators, physicians, philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, and clergy. He holds a Ph.D. in sociology from the University of California at Berkeley, as well as 13 honorary doctorates, two Distinguished Achievement Awards from the National Educational Press Association, and an Award of Excellence from the Associated Church Press. He is the author of 10 books, including several award-winning titles, that have sold over 1.5 million copies and been translated into 10 languages. We mentioned a few of them in our conversation, and you'll find links to all of them on the episode webpage at HowCanIsayThis.com. There, you can also find more information about Parker and his many notable accomplishments. Recent recognition includes being named as one of 25 visionaries on Utney Reader's 2011 annual list of People Who Are Changing the World, as well as receiving the Contemplative Voices Award from the Shalom Institute in Washington, D.C. in 2017. A member of the Religious Society of Friends, Dr. Palmer and his wife, Sharon Palmer, live in Madison, Wisconsin. Happy New Year, Parker. I am so delighted to welcome you to the How Can I Say This podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Beth, and Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Well, I'd love to spend a little bit of time talking about your new book, which is called On the Brink of Everything. In a nutshell, what's the core message that you hope to convey through that book? Well, you know, the subtitle of the book is Grace, Gravity, and Getting Old. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, those are three three realities of my life now. I'm getting old. I'm soon to turn 80. And um, I'm very aware of the grace that has brought me thus far and also of the pull of gravity on my life in every, in every possible way. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the message for me is that there are certain realities about aging that one has to be mindful of about and attentive to you 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 have to stop fooling yourself about i can do anything anytime i want i I don't have all of the physical and intellectual agility that i had maybe 40 years ago Mm -hmm. um but at the same time it's it's not a downer um as as a person nearing 80 i regard myself as one of the lucky ones it doesn't take 50 15 seconds of thought to realize that Many, many people in our world don't make it this far. And here I am with all of these experiences and all of these opportunities 
and uh, all of these chances to continue to engage the world in ways that are appropriate to my age, my place in life, to you know, to where I am planted, as it were. Mm-hmm. And I think age brings a tremendous perspective to who we are and how we can best engage the world. As I say early in the book, to me, being on the brink of everything means that I have a brand new and quite exceptional view as I look back, as I look around, and as I look ahead. And looking back, for example, I can see how everything that's ever happened in my life somehow belongs. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that my experience over 80 years has woven a, a fabric of many threads. And, and there were times in my life, like most people, I think, when I put in a thread that I wished I hadn't and that I wished I could withdraw, <laughs> mm-hmm. but, that's not, but that's not possible. And yet now, looking back, I can say, well, even that, that dark thread, as we might call it, contributes not only to the beauty of the overall pattern of one's life, but especially to its resilience. Um, if you've had hard times, then you know at age 80 that you can make your way through hard times. And, and so in some ways, the, the past is, is redeemed. It's no longer a cause for regret, but instead there's much to celebrate and much to appreciate. And looking around at this moment with, with aliveness um, as the theme, mm-hmm. um, I feel a great sense of gratitude. Um, I've always felt that gratitude is one of the key components of a good life and of of being fully present in the world in a in a way that might be helpful to others. And age brings with it, for me at least, a great sense of gratitude that I'm here to enjoy a, yet another sunrise, yet another sunset, um, and to marvel at the fact that people do what people do under the most difficult of circumstances, to marvel at the, hu- at the courage of the human spirit and the resilience of the human spirit. So great gratitude and a sense of wonder about being alive on the face of the earth in a remarkable and very diverse community of, of both human and non-human life. Right. And then finally, looking ahead, um, as I say in the book, I, I have no bad memories of where I came from. I came from a mystery that, that can't be named or explained. Uh, for which there there are no maps or mm-hmm. GPS <laughs> uh, <laughs> location finders. I have no bad memories of wherever it was I came from, and so why should I have fears about wherever it is that I'm going? Um, I'm somehow returning to the source, and uh, that there's there's great consolation with that. So I su- that's a big nutshell, but I think that's the core message. <laughs> Of, of on the brink of everything. Yeah, that's beautifully stated. Um, and one of the things you and I talked about last month where I shared, so I'm 47, and I, as I thought about, you know, approaching a book that was talking about aging, I thought, oh, am I am I old enough for this? <laughs> and, then I, <laughs> and I realized, absolutely, I'm old enough for this. And I would say, even if somebody was in their 20s, it's the perfect time, because we're, we're all getting older every day. Yes. And it's never too early, I think, to start having that, um, to learning from that perspective and gratitude that you have expressed so eloquently here. 
Um, you know, those are those are words and concepts that I wish I'd had in my life more strongly earlier. Hmm. Yeah, well, I do have younger people approach me um, with a kind of smile on their face saying, mm -hmm. I guess this isn't a book for me. And I'll, I'll simply say, well, as far as I can tell, you're getting older. If, <laughs> if you weren't, you'd be in big trouble. Exactly. And I'm glad you're not in big trouble. So maybe it is for you. But I, I say somewhere in the book, I think this is a book not only for older people, but for those young people whom we sometimes describe as as being old souls. Yes. Um, and as you know from reading the book, I am a huge advocate of intergenerational friendships, relationships, um, intergenerational work uh, and creativity. It's been a, it's played a huge role in my life, continues to do so. And I know that when the younger and older generations connect, it's like connecting the poles of a battery. Yeah. Um, a new energy starts to flow into the world and, and into each of us. And I, I value that, that very, very much. So I'm delighted to say that the book does have younger readers. I hear from them quite a bit. Excellent, excellent. Well, and and your intergenerational partnerships, I, I don't know her age, but it strikes me that um, your work with Carrie Newcomer is an example of that um, you know, mix, mixed generations pulling together to create something wonderful. Yeah, I'm, I value my friendship and my shared vocation with Carrie very, very much. Um, I'm old enough to be her father, so that puts us in two generations. So, um, you know, she's a singer-songwriter, for those who don't know her remarkable work. And together, just last year, we created an online project called The Growing Edge. Um, people can find it by Googling that title, The Growing Edge, or by going to uh, newcomerpalmer.com. And um, Carrie is a remarkable creative spirit whose, whose medium is poetry and, and music. Um, I'm mainly a, a writer of prose. Mm -hmm. Both of us have been devoted to various forms of social activism and so we we meet in that space as well but but for me at age 80 working with a younger person who filters things through a musical sensibility um has been a a, a real a wonderful creative stretch it's like it's like learning a new language and learning how to communicate in a in a in a different way not that i am going to take up singing or or <laughs> an, an instrument but Carrie and I have put together a couple of stage shows, which we've now performed um, over a dozen times, um, both of which are song and spoken word events, 90-minute stage shows, in which uh, we pursue various themes in a structured way by alternating spoken word and uh, music that Carrie sings, uh, accompanies herself on the guitar, and then is also accompanied by a wonderful pianist named Gary Walters, mm. who tours with her. So our latest show is called What We Need Is Here, mm. uh, Hope, Hard Times, and the Human Possibility. Uh, and I know you're in, in Michigan, Beth. We last performed it for a couple of thousand people in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, in a big basketball stadium there at Calvin College. Oh, so. Yeah, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience, and we love doing that that work together. But it's a good example of how 
you know, two people who, who grew up in different eras, who look at the world through both similar and different lenses, and, and who have different skill sets or, or gifts or offerings to make to the world, uh, can collaborate and, and enrich each other's work in the process. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm I'm so sorry I missed you in Grand Rapids because that's only about 45 minutes from me. So, <laughs> oh my, I'm sorry too. Mm. I'm going to have to keep keep better uh, track of things so that it, that doesn't happen again. Well, there seems to be a lot going on, so I understand. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I just want to uh, reiterate one thing that you you know just pull back one piece of what you just shared before I move on to my next question, and is that that's that point about the dark threads. Um, being part of that fabric. And it occurs to me that, you know, when we're in a dark thread moment, it can feel like that's all there is. Mm-hmm. And when you are able to step back and you can see the lighter threads that are around it and that actually support it, um, it's it's easier to have that. Um, that It seems like that's part of healing. Yeah. Um, to see that bigger perspective. Yeah, I, abs- I absolutely believe that. Um, Joseph Campbell, who famously did a series of interviews with Bill Moyers on public television years ago, mm-hmm. said in the course of those interviews, he said, there there is no work of art, there is no work of beauty that does not have the dark thread running through it. Yeah. And I think he's I think he's absolutely right about that. It's the it's the offset of the light and the dark, isn't it, that, that helps mm-hmm. us appreciate mm-hmm. the light, um, something we know in the natural world very well. If we had sunshine 24-7, something would have gone radically wrong. Right. <laughs> and a lot of plant and animal life wouldn't flourish. It it needs the darkness as a, as a time of, of rest. It needs winter as a time of lying fallow. Mm-hmm. And th- those moments and those rhythms are true in our own lives as well. We we are, after all, embedded in the natural world, creatures of the natural world. But I, it's taken me many years to appreciate the role of darkness in, in my life. Um, you know, we all want to live in the light all the time, but mm-hmm. that's not the way real things grow in the real world. And age makes that so much clearer <laughs> and, and gives you a chance to hold that with deeper appreciation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the other thing that I think um, aging helps us to hold with deeper appreciation is around our ego. <laughs> That's one of the themes that you have in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the words you used that I love was our overweening ego. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that ego can get in our way, um, you know, depending on our relationship with it. It gets in the way of us being fully present and being real with each other. And that can create obstacles to meaningful connection. And one of the reasons I, I launched this podcast was to talk about connection. Mm-hmm. Um, so what has time and reflection revealed to you about how to be in healthy relationship with our egos? Well, first of all, let me say that I think your theme of connection is, is wonderful. And I'm so glad you've you've got a whole podcast devoted to it. We need to be thinking about that a lot yeah. these days. Thank you. So I think the word ego is a little tricky because on the one hand, one of the saddest things to see in life is a person who has no ego strength at all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a person who lacks a, a, a strong sense of self and of self-worth, a person who lacks boundaries, the kind of boundaries that the ego is can help us create. 
So we're talking about a balance point in here. The overweening ego is at the other end of that continuum, and that's the the ego that says it's either my way or the highway. Um, the the world revolves around me. Uh, this this is all about me all the time, mm-hmm. and I whatever I believe to be true, whatever I think is is factual and correct. Um, if you don't think it that way, the same way, then I cast you into the into the outer darkness. <laughs> now, as as to what it is in my own life that has helped me deal with that persistent problem, and and it is a persistent problem for many people because many of us find, especially in the course of our work lives and sometimes in the course of our family lives, in situations where there's a pretty steady kind of ego struggle going on about who gets it his or her way, who gets to dominate. For me, I think the main driver toward trying to get my ego in check has been the sense of loneliness that comes when the ego is all you got going for you. The overweening ego uh, functions to isolate you from other people. And we aren't meant to live in isolation. The interesting thing for me, Beth, about your word connection, Mm -hmm. is that we we ought not to be seeing connection as um, an ethical ought that we are striving for. We should be looking at connection as our birthright condition, our birthright gift. If it weren't for human connection, none of us would be alive. Um, We are born of community, at least the community of two people, a mother and a father. Mm -hmm. That's just the way human biology works. But obviously much more than that. The all the aunts and uncles and all and the siblings and the grandparents and the friends and neighbors uh, and the the kindness of strangers that surrounded us as we were growing up and helped us come along. You know, all of the community in all of those forms, connection in all of those forms, has has made us who we are today. Sometimes those connections have been very problematic. They've been unhealthy. And we've had to work our way through them and sometimes out of them. But in my life, at least, there is also much to be grateful for about the teachers who came along and saw more in me than I saw in myself. And if I take an honest measure of my own life and the number of times somebody's sort of sacrificed, you know, their their right to be center stage and instead focused on me and my potentials, um, then I realize how how lucky I am to have had connections of that sort and how the only way I can keep that gift alive is to pass the gift along to other people. So in my work as a teacher, it's my highest aspiration to do for my students what my teachers did for me which is to see in my students something they don't see in themselves. And that means getting my ego out of the way. That, that means no longer looking at teaching as, I'm the smart guy, you're the dumb people, mm-hmm. I am going to fill you with my knowledge because I have a PhD and I know a whole lot of stuff that you don't mm-hmm. know. That, that egocentric way of teaching has nothing to do with real teaching. But if I can empty myself of that and I can start saying now, 
the more I understand about my students' lives, the more I understand that they do know a lot or they wouldn't be here to tell the story. I mean, I've taught, for example, in Appalachia. I taught at Berea College, which Mm -hmm. has served the young people of Appalachia since the middle of the 19th century. I had students there who, from age 10 onward, were, were helping to raise four or five siblings in a shack in a holler who, uh, because mom was having to work two jobs, dad was disabled as an alcoholic, and this 10-year-old girl was having to be both a a grade school student and the mother to several younger children. Well, if I had grown up that way, I would not be sitting at a college seminar table trying to get a bachelor's degree. I needed a lot more support growing up than that to to get to a place where I was college ready. And yet here's a young woman who obviously knows things that I don't know, who obviously has strengths that I don't have, or else she wouldn't be here. Yeah. And and so I have to get put my ego aside. I have to look at her with amazement and wonder and and appreciation. And I have to find every way I can to evoke from her, to educate, to draw out from her that which she knows as part of the learning equation. And as I do that, I can then connect that with what I know, and that's the equation for good teaching. What do I know? What do you know? And how can we join our knowing together to make something larger than either one of us has alone? So in my own work as a teacher, that's to me, that's you know that's a, a good example of why I've gotten ego out of the way. I've wanted that connection with that student or with that other person, and I couldn't get it as long as my ego was dominating. And I, I can quickly use my career as a writer to exemplify this as well. As you know, On the Brink of Everything is my 10th book. Mm-hmm. And For 40 years, through 10 books, my deepest desire has been to connect with my readers in a meaningful way on a human-to-human level. Well, that means being honest about my own story in the books that I write. You know, nobody ever connected with another person deeply by parading his or her honors and successes, <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that that tends to put other people off. But if we can be honest about our, our brokenness, about our struggles, about our failures, about when we've fallen down, and about how we've learned that the trick in life is to get up time and time again, then we start making those connections. Um, a quick example is that I have in the course of my life experienced profound depression three different times in my adult life. And I've written about those times. Um, Once I got them fully integrated into my sense of self and could hold them with equanimity and understanding, I started writing about them. I've written about many topics, but I get more email and phone calls and, and U.S. mail about what I've written about my struggles with depression than anything else I've written about. Teaching, politics, spirituality, whatever, because 
first of all, because depression is so widespread in our society, so epidemic. And secondly, because it's a point of vulnerability yes. where uh, another, where a reader can recognize me as a real human being and I can recognize the reader as a fellow traveler on a very difficult road. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I was just working with a client yesterday who was um, talking about struggling with asking for help. And I reflected back to her that, hmm, I, it sounds like asking for help is vulnerable for you. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it, it, it's exposing. And I said, what does, when I say vulnerable, what does that mean to you? And she said, weak, um, you know, uh, lacking somehow, mm. uh, you know, et cetera. She had very negative connotations about it. And I think she knew even as she was saying it that that wasn't the full story, but that was the story that she had absorbed. Mm-hmm. So as you talk about it, when you think of vulnerability, where do you see vulnerability as strength? I see vulnerability as strength because, first of all, you have to be strong to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's an interesting paradox. Mm-hmm. You know, here we come to the good kind of ego strength, right? Yes. The, the ego strength that says, I'm a real human being with a real story, and I'm not afraid to tell that story because we connect so profoundly in honest storytelling. Yeah. And and so that kind of strength allows you to be vulnerable. And then when you are vulnerable, the strength gathers because you find yourself more deeply embedded in community, which is where we get a lot of our strength. Despite the American myth that we're all supposed to be like the Lone Ranger, mm-hmm. you know, the individualistic pioneer, we are, in fact, creatures of community. And and while there are individual strengths that we need to develop, and there are trips that we can only take alone, I, I would suggest, for example, that the ultimate trip we take, the, the trip toward our own death, mm-hmm. is a trip on which no one can really accompany us. I mean, they can, they can witness to us, they can be at our side, but they can't go there with us. Um, There are trips we have to take alone, but a lot of the things that we need to do in life can only be done with the help of other people. And this whole American mythology of the self-made man or woman uh, is a very pernicious mythology. It's a total delusion. And it would be a wonderful transformation of American culture if we could start to realize that nobody ever got to where they are if it's someplace good without the help of a lot of other people. And if you avoided going somewhere really bad, you doubtless did that with the help of a lot of other people too. Mm -hmm. So so for me, vulnerability and strength are not contradictory terms. They're complementary terms. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that perspective. And, um, you know, you're reminding me, like, there, to me, like, there's no such thing as self-help. <laughs> it's, yeah. Like you said, there there are certain journeys that we that we do walk alone, um, and the the vast majority that we experience in the course of our lives are ones that are enhanced and made more meaningful when they are in community, as you said. Yes, absolutely. Well, aging definitely is one of those things. And the aging, as I was reading your book, here's here's a question that came up for me. This, the, another paradox, um, 
similar. And it also has to do with vulnerability. The aging that happens later in our lives, it strikes me that there is a unique tension there that that we feel at no other time. And that's of liberation and vulnerability. Um, one of the things you write about is being able to release the need to posture or pretend that dominates our early years. Mm-hmm. And being able to release that creates a sense of liberation and freedom. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, and you have already alluded to this in our conversation, we become increasingly vulnerable as we are more acutely aware of the interdependence that we have on others because of diminishing physical or mental capacities. We end up being both more and less mm-hmm. <laughs> interdependent mm-hmm. or independent, I should say. Mm-hmm. Have you experienced that tension? Mm-hmm. And if so, how have you responded to it? Yeah, I, that's a very astute observation. I think, Beth, I'm not sure I've ever heard it put exactly that way, but I I very much affirm it and identify with it. Yes, as I've grown older, I've realized that I'm among that legion of people for whom one of the next lessons in life is how to ask for and accept help, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I've always been a person who has kind of, you know, wanted to do more than my share of of the work and do it um, under my own steam and on my own hook. And here's a silly little example, but I can remember, I can remember the day, which probably was about ten years ago, when this two-story house that we live in needed uh, in the late fall to have the gutters cleaned. Mm-hmm. And I did what I'd done every year up to that point. I got out this you know humongous extension ladder that we owned and started cranking it up toward the roof. And my wife was watching me uh, from an indoor window. And because I didn't have uh, as much upper body strength as I had had the year before and Mm -hmm. for many years before that, that ladder very nearly fell backwards right on me, Uh um, which would have done serious damage. I managed to catch it at the last moment and um, avoid a really bad accident. And my wife came out and said, Parker, you're going to pull that ladder down. Um, we're going <laughs> to we're going to sell that ladder <laughs> and we're going to use the money to hire somebody mm-hmm. who knows what they're doing and has the strength to do it to get up on the roof. Well, I, I won't say that I didn't feel just a little bit humiliated <laughs> at that moment. And I'm I'm sure I huffed and puffed a bit about how I can do this, but um, I can still do this, but I knew I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And and so I was clearly at, at a transition point in life where I I needed to say, oh, there, there are now things that I can't do. I can't go out um, here in Madison, Wisconsin, where we have maybe eight inches of snow on the ground right now mm-hmm. and vigorously shovel a sidewalk at, at 10 degrees above zero, you know, without risking some heart problems yeah. <laughs> and maybe a trip, maybe a trip to the ER. Um, hospitals are filled this time of year with men, especially yeah. um, who, who didn't smell the coffee and didn't realize <laughs> they, uh, I can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I think the, the answer for me as to how I hold that paradox is that because I value community, it's reasonably easy for me to realize once I get a little help from my friends, like from my wife, that accepting 
assistance is another form of community. And it's easy for me to say, if I, if 20 years ago I had seen someone else older than me struggling with a ladder, I would have run over to offer assistance mm-hmm. and to say, look, let me help you get this job done. Let me be the one to go up that ladder once we get it up together. And let's make sure that nothing uh, bad happens to you in, in the process. Well, one of the lessons I've learned in life is that if 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 you uh, have a capacity to offer a gift of that sort uh, of assistance to other people, then you must also have a capacity to accept that gift for yourself. Yeah. If you don't, you're just really playing some kind of holier than thou game. Which is yeah. which is unattractive and unseemly. Yep. It's really not possible to be in the world as a good caregiver <laughs> if you are incapable of receiving care for yourself. Yes. And that that insight has been very very liberating yeah. to me. Um, I, I think that helping and being helped is a two way street, and if you turn it into a one way street. Um, bad things happen. Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't work well. Well, I think you must have been a fly on the wall during my client session again yesterday because that was another theme, and it was around compassion. You know, someone who gives a lot of compassion to others has trouble receiving compassion from others and giving it to themselves. Mm-hmm. And so, I appreciate what you're saying there about um, if we have the capacity to give. It behooves us to have the capacity to receive. Yeah, it it absolutely does. And in fact, I think that if we could start learning to receive help earlier in our lives, Mm -hmm. we would offer help with more sensitivity and understanding. We would do it less awkwardly. Mm -hmm. We would do it more empathetically. We, We would realize how it feels to be in the position of the one who's being offered help and who needs help. Mm-hmm. And we, we could approach that negotiation with more tenderness. I'll give you just a quick parallel. At age 35, with a PhD in hand and many years of being a student behind me, but also half a dozen years of being a teacher now or a professor behind me, I returned to the classroom as a student Mm -hmm. for a semester. And as I sat there, I thought, oh, now I remember how it feels to sit in the student seat. (laughs) And I'm very aware of what this professor is doing that is off-putting to me, Mm -hmm. that's alienating, that's insulting. And I'm going to make notes on everything this fellow does that works against being a good teacher, works against making good connections with his students. And I'm going to return to my role as a teacher with heightened sensitivity to how it feels to be in that student seat. And uh, it was partly out of that experience that there came a book called The Courage to Teach, which is partly about the courage of, of getting your ego out of the way and remembering um what it's like to be on the other end of the teaching and learning equation. Yes, yeah, that empathy piece. And Mm -hmm. as you were talking about your story with the ladder, 
And you said you admit to feeling a little bit of humiliation around that. I thought that humility, which is the other thing that I sense that, that comes through in your writing, like the, the increasing humility and or humbleness um, that, that the aging process and, and moving, you know, further on your journey in life brings. It strikes me that humility doesn't have to equal humiliation. Mm-hmm. Those are two two different things, and we often will collapse them in right, some way. Right, exactly. So sometimes, you know, I think what we have to do is crawl through, <laughs> crawl or stumble through an experience that feels humiliating mm-hmm. in order to get to humility. Yes. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. so, some, sometimes, as we as the old saying goes, we learn things the hard way. But but then the next step is to learn to value the lesson, mm-hmm. even if it was quote humiliating. Yes. And I'm I'm very interested in the word origins etymology, and um, the words humility and humiliation and humus mm-hmm. have a common root. Mm-hmm. And so humus, of course, is is the ground out of which things grow. It is that which nurtures new life in the world on the earth. And I, and I love that that image that what humiliates or what humbles is an enrichment mm-hmm. of the soil yeah. for the growth of new life. That yeah. that makes a lot of sense to me metaphorically. Yeah, absolutely. It's like it takes us back closer to the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I.e. grounded. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I, I think nice. I think you know the, the well it's a longer story. I'll just make it really, really short. But the, the history of spirituality as a discipline has often been up, up, and away. Mm-hmm. I think it's actually, the actual direction is down, down, down to the ground of our being. Yes. To, to ground on which it's safe to stand. Yes. And I think that's what, you know, that's that's the place where we can finally meet other people. We can meet ourselves. And when we fall down, as we often do, we can get up and dust ourselves off and take a next step. If you fall down from a great altitude <laughs> of ego or spirituality or ethics or um, intellect, you have a long way to fall, and you're likely to hurt yourself pretty badly. Yeah. But if you're standing on the ground of your being and you fall, then you just get up and move on. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're you're naming one of my favorite um, phrases for God is ground of all being. And mm-hmm. I can't remember where that originated. I think I heard, first heard it from Marcus Borg. Mm-hmm. And yeah. of anything that I've heard, it, it resonates the most. And now I'm realizing why listening to you talk about that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I actually had the privilege of studying at Union Theological Seminary with Paul Tillich, who uh, oh. was the originator of that of that phrase. Okay, uh, that's where yeah. it came from. But Marcus Borg is a great interpreter of that stream of, of of theological thought. Yeah, absolutely. Well, since we're speaking of theology, I just want to touch on that one of the pieces of your identity is as a Quaker, mm-hmm. and you are, and you write about this commitment to nonviolence. And yet, and again, you write about this, you still believe that anger has a place in civil discourse. And I've heard some propose that even talking or acting with, you know, quote, unquote, civility, especially in politics is a liability. 
What is your perspective on the role of anger and civility in the public square, mm-hmm. and can they coexist? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as you know, I I have an essay or two in the book on that on that subject. Yes. So if people are interested in in more about my thinking on that, they can they can go to that book. Um, first of all, I, I guess I have to start with the premise that today and always in American politics. There are things going on that if I didn't get angry about them, I would worry about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm angry about white supremacy and its overt expression and encouragement. I'm angry about the number of children of color who are at risk because uh, people in high places are providing them rhetorical cover. Yeah. I'm angry about the stereotyping, the cruel and groundless stereotyping of Mexicans and other immigrants and people fleeing political persecution from Latin America and elsewhere in the world. If I weren't angry about those things, I don't, I don't think I'd, I could claim any care for human beings and the human condition. So I don't fault myself for anger. The issue for me is around what do I do with that anger? And my own journey has been to understand that anger is just one more form of emotional energy. Love is a form of emotional energy. Passion is a form of emotional energy, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and anger is a form of emotional energy. And, and with energy, the question is, what are, what are you going to harness it to? Mm-hmm. What are you going to ride it toward? And so I've my constant effort is to harness my anger toward better outcomes for all concerned, and that has included um, engagement in the in the civic arena in this very complicated civic arena, which is so fraught with dangers these days, where we find it so hard to talk to each other. I know that's a topic very close to your heart and yes. to the heart to the heart of this of this podcast. So civility comes along for me in this way. I've, I've said for a long, long time, and I think I probably started saying this, well, I, maybe I first said it in print in a book that I published in 2011 called Healing the Heart of Democracy, mm-hmm. um, where I could sort of see the handwriting on the wall in the uncivil society in which we were living. Civility, I've I've argued, um, has nothing to do with watching our tongues. I, I just I, I just think it's it's a very thin version of civility to say, well, be sure to use polite language. I think we have to use truthful language. I think we have to use factual language. But civility, the key to civility, is valuing our differences. And, and not trying to blink them at the same time, not trying to pretend they're not there, yeah. but to hold our differences with a sense that if, if, we can, if we can stay in a conversation across differences, we might get somewhere better than where we are at this moment. And Lord knows we need to be better, someplace better than where we are at, at, this, at this moment. So one of my little formulaic sayings, which seems helpful with many audiences, is that it's more important to be in right relationship than it is to be right. Yeah. And and by that, I, I don't mean 
I do not mean for a minute that there's no difference between right and wrong. There is a difference between right and wrong. There's a difference between a fact and a lie mm -hmm. or an untruth. Um, and we, we must never give up on that difference. And I must never give up on my sense of where those differences are. But the point is that if I'm not in right relationship with another person who differs with me on these complicated matters, we will never have an opportunity to sort these complexities out if we don't create a container of relational trust, of mutual trust, in which to continue to hold that conversation. And, and so, you know, name-calling is out, demonizing is out, but honest language can't be out. Mm -hmm. If we exclude honest language, then there's no real conversation happening. We're just kind of blowing smoke at each other, and that's not a fit way for a grown-up to live. I think a quick example that keeps popping up, in, at least in my world of discourse, is this. If a prominent person in public life has a factually demonstrated record of lying time after time after time, then naming that person as a liar is not an insult. Mm -hmm. It's an empirical description. Mm -hmm. And we have to be able to use empirical language. It's not enough uh, about a person who, uh, you know, is on videotape one day saying one thing, and then in, on the next day is on videotape denying that he or she ever said it. It's not enough to say, well, that person seems to be challenged a little bit by the truth, you know, or, or, or seems to <laughs> mm -hmm. kind of, kind of, kind of contradict himself every now and then. No, that if that person does it one, two, three, four, five, six documented thousands of times, that person is not unfairly described as a liar. So, and, and I would say the same about even harsher words than that. We, we have to, if we know what we're talking about, if we, if we understand definitions mm -hmm. and sort of scientific terms of art, we have to be able to use that language in order to communicate what it is we're really seeing and really thinking. One more quick example. I think political scientists are widely agreed that there are certain marks of fascism. Mm -hmm. so fascism is not an insult in political science. It's a term of art. It's a category with which a certain kind of leader is described. And I think most political scientists would say, well, among the marks of a fascist leader are these three. The fascist leader picks out a problem that's very painful for many people. Number two, the fascist leader finds a scapegoat on which to blame that problem. So in Germany, it was Hitler focusing on the problem of economic decline and cultural collapse that the German people were experiencing and picking a, a scapegoat in the form of the Jews. Mm -hmm. And then number three, a fascist leader promises to and takes steps toward eliminating the scapegoat. He says, I'll take care of this for you. I'm the strong man who can do all of this. And we will just see that these people go away. Um, and you do that not only with a gas chamber, as Hitler did it, but you can also do it with dismissive terms of, of insult, 
mm-hmm. um, that um, render the other irrelevant to your life. And obviously, that's that's a form of killing someone off. If if yeah. you are irrelevant to my life, then it's not an exaggeration to say that I or someone else has performed a piece of verbal sleight of hand or you know mental magic that has rendered that has killed you off. So it's a, it's complicated, but it, it's very clear to me that we won't get anywhere in our civic discussions if we don't create strong containers in which we can use honest language with thoughtful definitions and challenge each other to do something that is not happening enough in this society these days, and that is to think um, and to think hard with each other. And in, in that process, I obviously not only have to make a contribution to the conversation by telling people where I stand, I have to listen with great care to where they stand. But knowing that we're running out of time, let me just say one more thing that is, for me, is even deeper than this. Before, and this is something I recommend in, in my book, uh, Healing the Heart of Democracy, before I ask you where you stand, I, I want to ask you a very simple question. Can you tell me a story from your own life that will help me understand why you believe what you believe. Mm-hmm. Because it's at that level of storytelling that we first begin to create that strong container. I have so many examples of it, I hardly know where to begin. But I remember, for example, a conversation with a physician one evening several years ago. Mm-hmm. I'm a great advocate of universal single-payer health care. He wasn't. And... I asked him why, and instead of going off on an ideological rant, he said, look, Parker, it's very simple. I find myself under the system that I'm now working in as a physician. I find myself staying at the office until 10, 11 at night, filling out forms that reflect what the work I did trying to heal patients and keep patients alive during the day. And what this has effectively meant is that I have no family life and my family is suffering for it. That's why I am not a great fan of a system that requires endless paperwork on top of the very difficult job I have of being a good doctor to a whole lot of people. Well, that got to me, Mm -hmm. you know. That made me rethink things. Uh, That human story kind of shook me off of my bedrock ideological convictions and made me realize that there were other variables in this equation that needed careful consideration and real solutions if this was going to work. Well, and it, it strikes me that you entered into that conversation with your physician friend, um, open to influence and with a, a dose of humility when you just by asking why or, you know, tell me more mm-hmm. yeah. about that perspective. And, um, and that's key. Yeah, I was truly mm-hmm. curious. And, you know, this was a, a situation where we had relational yeah. trust with each other. And that's so key. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we need to do when we're strangers is to do everything we can to build relational trust. And I think that that starts with storytelling 
you know, who are you, where did you come from, what interests you. Um, th- there's a poet named Elizabeth Alexander who has a great simple line that I just love. She says, are we not of interest to each other? Hmm. <laughs> love it. <laughs> we are. We are. Of course we are. Why don't we build on that more often rather than jumping into these ideological arguments which go nowhere? Yeah. The arguments can come but they will come in a very different, more creative context if that context is built out of mutual understanding through storytelling. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking you might be um, starting to answer my my final question, which is around um, a phrase you use in the book, hold our conflicts creatively. Mm-hmm. That's an invitation you issue to us, and I suspect stories have something to do with that. So what does it look and feel like to hold our conflicts creatively? Well, I think for me, um, Beth, and it's a great question um, and not, you know, not easily answered, but to cut to the chase, mm-hmm. I think I know I'm holding a conflict creatively when what I'm hearing from the other person is actually helping to open my heart and mind. Mm-hmm. When I'm starting to say to myself, oops, I better rethink this. Mm-hmm. Or, oops, I missed out on some deep feeling that this person on the other side of the fence has, and and rightly so. It's not an irrational feeling for this dedicated physician to um, want to, to grieve the loss of his family life. Mm-hmm. This fellow had uh, two sons that he loved very much, a wife that he loved, and he just wasn't getting much time with them when when he was awake enough or feeling good enough to be a be present as a good husband and a good father and who can't identify with that so when i when my mind and my heart are being stretched by by what i'm hearing then i know i'm holding a conflict creatively Mm. when i've when i've been knocked off of my single-payer you know universal (laughs) health care ideological perch and I'm having to find a new footing because of something deeply human that I've heard Mm -hmm. Um, then then I feel that I'm holding conflict creatively and what I love about that story is that his his opposition to single payer is not single payer (laughs) it's it's not government it's not any of that it's a very personal and so by hearing his story, then there's an opening to say, oh, so you care about time with your family. You know, how can we make this work for you? Right. You know, if it's about paperwork, what can we do about that? You know, instead of staying on what we often do is our surface knee-jerk response, you're for or against it, and it's your rationale for supporting it. It must be in the same ballpark as mine. Yeah. Um, You know, for for opposing or, you know, whichever. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, the, the humility of that moment for me came mm-hmm. in a very simple way. It was like sudden realization, oh, I'm not a physician. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. I, I, I have no idea how it feels to be in your shoes, but now I do. Yeah. And, you, yeah, you're absolutely right. The ground of the discussion has shifted. Yes. And you're now on the more solid ground of the shared human journey. Mm-hmm. Because uh, while I'm not a physician, I am a husband and a father, mm-hmm. and I want to be good in that role. Yep. And there was not an ounce of me that couldn't understand 
what my physician friend was saying. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I have so enjoyed this conversation, Parker, and I I really appreciate you taking time with us. And um, I want to close because we both, I should say, over the past few years in all of this kind of living in the upside down, if you will, that we've been experiencing, there are a few people that I have seen as um, beacons of hope and and are articulating things, you know, things that need to be said and, um, and providing inspiration. And you are one of them. And, um, as is Mary Oliver, who we know, um, just died last week. And I know from your book that you also feel a resonance with Mary Oliver in her work. And I wondered if you have a favorite poem of hers and if you'd be willing to share it. Well, I absolutely do. And thank you so much for your kind comment, Beth. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have to say, you've put me way above my pay grade to put me with Mary <laughs> Oliver, but, because she, oh, no. this Mary Oliver, who, as many of your listeners may know, died last week, a great, great American poet, died at age uh, 83, I believe, um, just wrote some magnificent poetry over the course of many years, and I'm one of millions of people who've sort of lived by Mary Oliver poems along with others. And so the one I'd, I'd like to read to you is, is one of my very favorites. Uh, it's called The Summer Day, The Summer Day by Mary Oliver. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous, complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Mm. One of the most beautiful lines of poetry. Yes, absolutely. So much going on in that uh, in that poem. In addition to that famous last line, "What is yeah, it you plan yeah. to do with your one wild and precious life?" All that attention she's she's paying to what's around her, all her full presence to the natural world, her claim that she doesn't know exactly what a prayer is, and then she <laughs> describes it with great perfection. Exactly. <laughs> which is all about attentiveness. It's yes, yes, thank you for that opportunity. It's a beautiful poem in in memoriam for Mary yes. Oliver. Yes, rest in peace. Yes. Oh, well, thank you, Parker. And um, if someone wants more of your wisdom in their life, um, what's the best way to get it? Well, <laughs> for what it's worth, um, so I do have a Facebook author page under the name of Parker J, middle initial J, Palmer. Um, 
you can go to Amazon, among other places, and find 10 books and more because I've co-authored some and helped edit others. And you can also go to a website uh, that I mentioned earlier that I do with Carrie Newcomer, the singer-songwriter, which is called The Growing Edge, and it's found at newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com. Perfect. And I will include all of those links on the webpage for this episode. Um, Thank you. And and encourage people to follow up and, and learn more. Thank you. It's been a great delight to talk, Beth. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, Parker. I really appreciate it. And um, may 2019 hold lots of amazement and wonder and awareness for you. And also for you. Thank you. As I noted at the start, we covered a lot of ground in that conversation. But if I had to tease out a few themes, they are around humility, connection, community, ego, and being willing to be uncomfortable. Out of those, I have an action item for you. Notice where a dose of humility might open up new possibilities in a challenging relationship or conversation. I see humility as a willingness to be wrong, to learn something from the other person, and to be open to influence, and even, dare I say it, a willingness to change your mind. Before or during a potentially tense interaction, take a deep breath and ask yourself, what am I missing here? What's this person's story? Notice that Parker shared a number of stories, and through those, we experienced a glimpse into not just his mind, we glimpsed his heart. His stories take us below the surface, and he's inviting us to continually be looking for opportunities to build trust through sincere listening, an open heart, and an open mind. Before we sign off, I want to share one more tidbit from Parker's book, On the Brink of Everything. This comes from the beginning in the With Gratitude section. He writes, Sharon Palmer, my wife, gets the first look at everything I write and reads it with an artist's eyes. When I ask her how she edits my stuff, she said, I ask three questions. Is it worth saying? Is it said clearly? Is it said beautifully? I asked her only one question. How do I manage to get anything past you? I, I would just love to uh, have heard that conversation. <laughs> and when you read Parker's work, you find volumes of wisdom that was worth saying, said clearly, and said beautifully. As soon as I read Sharon's questions, I thought those also served as excellent guidelines for difficult conversations. As you consider your sharp retort or emotional reply, ask yourself, is it worth saying? Will it serve the relationship to say something? Is it said clearly? Have you adequately reflected on what's happening and gotten to the heart of it so that you can be precise and concise with your speech? And finally, is it said beautifully? Can you offer your thoughts from a place of empathy, love, and openness rather than anger or fear? I invite you to consider those questions the next time you want to prevent or diffuse unproductive conflict. Let them serve as a guide for shifting from fear to love. 
I'm grateful to Dave Stahoviak, host of the Coaching for Leaders podcast, for making the introduction between me and Parker. I'm also grateful to the people of Emanuel Presbyterian Church in Tacoma, Washington, who about four years ago chose both The Active Life and Healing the Heart of Democracy as reading material for our adult study group. That was my gateway to Parker's work, and it has been a gift that keeps on giving. Remember to visit the episode webpage at HowCanIsayThis.com for more information on how to connect with Parker and his work. From there, you can also access past episodes, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, or offer feedback. An occasional feature of this podcast is responding to listener questions about conflict, communication, and relationship building. I welcome your questions for inclusion in a future episode. You'll find the online submission form at HowCanIsayThis.com. You can also leave a text or a voicemail 24-7 at 562-704-6643. You'll find that number on the Submit a Question page on the website. And lastly, you can send me your question directly to beth at howcanisaythis.com. No matter how you submit a question, you always have the choice to be completely anonymous if you like. This is Beth Below, and you've been listening to How Can I Say This? Our podcast producer is Paul Messing, and our theme music is by Brett Anderson. Thanks for joining me today, and I invite you to take what you've learned here and use it to speak up, speak out, and speak courageously. Courageously.